My name is Sean. I'm the pastor here at Grace Church, and I'm really glad that you guys are here. Um, if you're a first-timer, at the end of the service, I'll ask you to put your name and email address on the bottom part of your communication card and to either drop that in the basket as it passes you or bring that back to the Connection Center. Uh, I've got a gift I want to give you before you go home. Uh, but what I do is with that email is on Monday, I send you an email saying, thanks for coming. And then I ask you, if you have a minute or two, would you share your thoughts with us about your, your weekend experience? And so we just ask four questions. And often uh, the response to the first question is, you know, what, what, was, what made the first impression uh, when, you, when you came today? About half the time, everybody says the parking lot guys. So how many of you guys uh, saw the parking lot fellas out there in the parking lot today? Raise your hand if you saw them. Like, like, like seriously, today of all days, they get extra Jesus points. Am I lying? Like, let's give it up for the parking lot guys. It is butt cold here, and um, uh, so you guys, if you're, this is the service that we're putting live on Facebook, so there's probably people, like uh, if you're on the face, watching us on Facebook, type where you're at right now, uh, but there are people in warmer climates who have no idea, like people from Boston that are in other places of the country or whatever, because it's, I don't know, because it was cold and they were smart, so they left, but we are freezing our heinies off. Now, when it's butt cold, that's, that's like a whole nother level of cold. Like if somebody's butt ugly, that's a whole nother level of ugly. If somebody's butt rich, that's a whole nother level of rich. You see what I'm saying? And it is butt cold here. So our parking lot, guys, if you're on the parking lot team, I just want to thank you uh, for serving God uh, in our church family. That way you guys are making a difference and, and people do notice. And it is good to have somebody smiling at you and waving if it is your first time. To have somebody help us find a place to park is, is really cool and, and kind of makes us not as anxious. So thank you guys for serving that way. Um, we're in the second week of a series uh, called Adopted. Uh, and to get it started, I want to talk a little bit about the way I was in middle school. I was a slow developer. Uh, I didn't, like, I don't think I actually had to shave until I was a freshman in college. Okay, now I shaved as a sophomore, but I said I didn't have to shave until I was a freshman in college. Not like Carter, who's been shaving since the fourth grade. Um, I wasn't manly like that. I was, I was a late bloomer. Any other late bloomers in the room? Raise your hand. Any other late bloomers? Okay, I was slow when it came to the ladies. Any other slow people in the room? Oh, really? There's that many players here? Come on bunch of freaking liars. Come on, you ain't all that cool. I've met most of you. I know you weren't that cool. So it's like, I was like really slow when it came to the girls, you know. I had crushes on them and everything like that. I just didn't have the guts to actually go do anything about the crush. So like I'd, I'd like look at them and then they'd look at me and I'd look away really quick and you know, or I'd trip them because that was how I communicated. That was my love language in 12th grade. No, I'm just kidding. But remember middle school, you'd pull the girl's hair that you liked or whatever, you'd trip her, or you'd tease her, or make fun of her, or, and then you'd make her cry, and then you'd feel really bad, but at least she noticed you, so you were happy. Okay, that was just my dysfunctional childhood, but as a seventh grader, I was on the, our, our school's basketball team, and there was a sixth grader there. Her name was Betty Greer, and Betty Greer had a crush on me, but she was so much younger than me. Remember when, like when you were a seventh grader? Sixth graders were like, oh my word, I would never like a sixth grader. They're like children. Okay, you're only like eight months older than them, but like at that age, that was a big deal. It's like the older you get, the less the age thing matters. But in middle school, that was a really big deal. I didn't want my seventh grade friends to know that there was a sixth grade girl. Like I couldn't get any other seventh grade girls to like me. Like if I was really cool, the eighth grade chicks would have liked me. 
right? But like a sixth grade girl liking me, that was like disappointing. Now, now objectively, I knew that she was pretty. Like I knew that she was pretty. Like even though I didn't like her, I, like, I was like, okay, she's, she wasn't like, you know, you didn't cringe whenever she walked. I did, but it had nothing to do with her looks. Um, just because, okay, so she would start following me to different things. And her older brother was Lynn Greer. Now, Glenn, Lynn Greer was a ninth grader who was like super cool. Um, like if you're a ninth grader and like juniors are coming to your birthday party and seniors are coming to your party, you're like a really cool freshman, right? That was Lynn Greer. So Lynn Greer is having a party and all the high schoolers are going to it. And Lynn Greer invited me to go to his party. And I'm like, oh, yeah, baby, who's the man, right? Sevy's rule. That's what I was thinking, Sevy's rule. Okay, I get there, and none of the high school kids are talking to me. And then I realized the only reason Lynn Greer invited me to his party was so that I could hang out with his little sister, Betty. So for three hours, I'm standing awkwardly next to Betty with a Coke. And we didn't hardly talk at all. And then they start playing Truth or Dare. I know. <laughs> I was there. And then the dare was, they went easy on me. They did. They went easy on me. I, we had to go outside, and me and Betty had to hold hands, and we had to run around the house twice, and at the end, I had to kiss her. So I'm like, no, and everybody's like, do it, do it, do it. Chug, 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 chug. Okay, no. <laughs> the parents were there. There's no alcohol involved, although that would have made it easier for me to go through with what I was about to go through. <laughs> For the record. So I go outside, I'm, I hold Betty's hand, and it's the first time I'm ever holding a girl's hand. So secretly, it was really very cool. <laughs> Remember the first time you ever held a girl's hand, you're sitting next to her, and like your pinkies touch, and then you freeze? Her <laughs> pinkies are touching. And then you put your pinky on top of her pinky, and she didn't move her hand, and you're like, yeah, baby! And, you got, and then you go on for the full-on handhold? Um, does anybody remember that? Anybody at all? Just me? No, thank you. Thank you, Jay. That was amazing. That was amazing. So I'm holding Betty's hand. We're running around the building by secret. Like I secretly thought it was cool, but on the outward, I'm like, I hate girls. And we're running around the building. We make it around the house twice, and we come back, and I'm like, kiss her, kiss her, kiss her, kiss her, kiss her. And I didn't. I stood there until everybody got bored and went back in the house. And like I had the perfect excuse to kiss a girl, and it wasn't even going to have to be my fault that I like like it was all, like she couldn't like the first time you ever kiss a girl, you're like really afraid she's not going to like kiss you back, right? So like that was the perfect moment, and I I completely blew it. I I just I didn't understand the way she was, so I didn't appreciate the way she felt about me. You know what I'm saying? So like the awesomeness of that person went complete, like it went right over my head. Like I, I completely missed it. She, a, a little while later, uh, her parents bought her a basketball jersey that was the same colors as our team jersey. And then she showed up to a practice, to a practice in front of all of the other guys and said, hey, Sean, come here. She yelled at me to come talk to her in a practice in front of all of my other seventh and eighth grade friends. And then she's a sixth grade girl. In practice, I run over there, and she's wearing a trench coat, which was sketchy. <laughs> it was. And, she, and my number was 43, and she opened it up and had number 43 on it, and I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> like, I was a moron. I was. Now, now, now a, a few years ago, her name kind of came up in a conversation with a friend, and I Facebook stalked her. I hope that's not. Is that anybody else? So I got just like, is she alive? 
Like, whatever happened to her, right? Is like, I did that, so I, I hope that's not, like, really weird or creepy. I mean, like, after about two hours, I felt like, okay, this is starting to get creepy. I'll get off her Facebook page now. Okay, it wasn't really that long, but she went to the, I, I heard she went to the Air Force, right? The Air Force Academy is where she went to in Colorado Springs, and she ended up marrying a fighter pilot, so her life worked out fine. I think God was trying to rescue her from this moron, is what that was. She's probably somewhere in Colorado Springs going, thank you, Jesus. I didn't end up with that idiot, right? So she ended up, but my point is, is like, like she was a really cool person. I look back and it's really cute and I realize how much of an idiot I was, but I, I was that way because I didn't understand. That's all. I just didn't understand, right? So my inability to understand the way she felt made it difficult for me to appreciate the way she felt. Does that make sense? And, and, and I don't think it's a difficult jump to say our inability to understand where other people are coming from makes it difficult for us to appreciate other people and their perspectives. Does that make, right? You're with me on this. That's not too far of a leap. But I also think the same is true in our relationship with God. Our inability to understand God's love makes it difficult for us to truly appreciate God's love. And when I talk about God's love, we instantly, I think by default, think of God's love in generic terms, like God loves mankind, God loves people, God loves sinners, God loves what, Christian, I mean, like whatever you want to put in there, God loves, and we think of that in like some type of generic sense, but this whole, I, this whole series that we're going through called Adopted is for us to get a better understanding of the kind of love that God actually has for us, because then I believe that it, we will appreciate God differently, and that new appreciation for the kind of love God has for us will change the way that we live our lives in relationship to him. Does that make sense? A lot of us were raised with a view of God that is unhealthy and dysfunctional. A lot of us were taught that we had to be good to go to heaven. How good? I don't know. God never told us, but you just best make sure you don't piss him off. Probably shouldn't have said that in church, but I did. My bad. But that's kind of like the way we feel. Am I right? Like, just don't, like, God's up there in heaven is like this, this cosmic disembodied force who somehow is measuring us on some kind of scale that he never was thoughtful enough to include us in on, and so we live in constant fear that I'm not good enough. And truthfully, because of our relationships with others are completely conditional, and that truth, like, I have a very healthy marriage, but I could do enough wrong to Billy Jane where she would reject me. So knowing that all relationships at some level are conditional, except maybe between a parent and a child, right? That maybe my relationship with God is that way. So when we find ourselves in patterns of unhealthiness or addiction or, I don't know, like what's, what's the junk you deal with on a regular basis? I know mine, but I was going to use it as an example, but I realized I don't know you that way. I'm not going to share all my garbage with you. That surely I've done enough to God that anybody else would have walked away from me by now. Maybe he would too. So this series adopted is to get us to a place where we'll recognize that God's kind of love for us is, is unique. That it's more to him than just God's created God and your puny little, little nothing person who can't ever get it right and keeps jacking up everything in your own world. Like you're like Plankton from the Chum Bucket, right? <laughs> any, any SpongeBob fans here, right? From the Krusty Krab. And I've lost everybody my age and older. But um, 
We, we think that we're like that in the eyes of God, but it's, 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 far, it's far more than that. Uh, you'll never appreciate the love that God has for you until you understand the kind of love that God has for you, and that's why we're doing this series. Uh, last week, there's three things, it's a, it's a three-week series, so it's pretty small. So uh, last week, Pastor Brian talked and did a, did a fantastic job talking about what we have to bring to the table, which is essentially nothing. Um, and that's, that's the case for all adopted cases where it's not like a family adopts a child because they need an extra mouth to feed. You know what I mean? I mean, the, the kid who's being adopted really doesn't add advantage to the family in any tangible way. It's, it's kind of, I mean, somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago, if God knew that we were all going to be this screwed up, why did God create us in the first place? And I said to ask Pastor Ken. <laughs> Which is normally what I do for all the tough questions, ask Pastor Ken. Um, but I, I, I don't have an authoritative answer. I have an answer, but I don't know if it's like the authoritative answer. But I would say, why does any parent have a child? It's because, I mean, I, why did we have kids? I mean, the planned ones. <laughs> is that we have, that sounds horrible. How many of us were the surprise babies? Anybody? A surprise baby? Oh, a lot of us. All right. We, we, have a, we didn't have a surprise baby. We had a bonus baby. Now, the circumstances are completely the same, but not all surprises are good. But everybody loves a bonus. Am I right? So we got a, we got a bonus baby. But the reason why we had children is because we had love to give, and we wanted somebody to exist to receive that love. We had it in our hearts. Like, we had more to give, and we wanted somebody to receive that. But truthfully, your children... Take and 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 take. I'm not the, the end of that sentence because they're not done breathing. So I think as long as they're breathing, it's a taking relationship. And if you took from me as much as they had taken from me, I would have cut you off years ago. But I don't them. You know why? They're mine. They're my kids. And the truth is, I ain't done giving. I got more to give and more to give and more to more, 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 more to give. And when we look at our relationship with God, in those terms, it changes everything. God doesn't, he knew I would take and take and take and take, and he's never rejected me over that. And that doesn't mean I should ever take advantage of his generosity. What I'm saying is that the times that I have taken advantage of his generosity has not caused him to reject me from his family. Does that make sense? This week, we're going to be talking about the evidence that should exist in your life if you've been adopted into his family. And next week, we're going to talk about the cost to pay to be a part of this family. That's what we're talking about next week. But before we get into the meat of it, I think that there's three misconceptions that we have about who is in the family of God that causes a lot of honest, sincere confusion when it comes to the family of God. And the first misconception that we have is that everybody is a child of God. We're all children of God. How many of you guys have ever heard that before? We're all children of God. Now, that sounds awesome, right? It makes a great Hallmark card. It's just not true. Now, and, I, and I know that that initially sounds, sounds harsh, but no more harsh than when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody goes to God the Father unless they go through me. I used to hate that verse. It was one of the verses, I, like I would never share that verse with people, not like I share it with a lot of people now. I'm not trying to be a jerk, but like, it felt like a jerky thing to say. Because Jesus essentially said, 
nobody goes to God unless they go through me. Well, I know what that means for all the other religions. That's why I'm so uncomfortable with it. Is that so exclusive? So it makes me cringe just a little bit. Until I recognized that if it's true, it was the most generous thing he could have ever said. Think of it this way. If you were drowning in the middle of the ocean and I came up to you with my rowboat and I said, hop in my rowboat, and you said no. And I said, if you don't get in my rowboat, you will die. And you look at me and go, well, what are you saying about all the other rowboats in the water? Where? Ain't no other rowboats out here, kid, but mine. You get in or you drown. That's not me being a jerk. That's me trying to get you to realize the gravity of your situation so that you will do what is in your best interest, which is to get your butt in my boat. And if there is only one God, I'm fairly confident he's self-actualized. He knows who he is. And so he knows there ain't nobody else out here coming for you. So when Jesus said, I am your only shot at God, he wasn't being a jerk. He's saying, hey, kid. Ain't nobody else out here coming for you. If you miss me, you miss God. It wasn't a jerky thing to say. It was the most generous thing he could have ever said. So in John chapter 1, he talks about who's in his family. And the idea is not that in everybody else is outside of my family. It's no. There is a way to become a part of my family. And until then, you're a spiritual orphan. Why would he share this with us? so that we would make an intelligent assessment of where we stood in relationship with God, so that we could do what? Fix it. It's a generous thing for him to say. So we're, and, and truthfully, if we live the rest of this life as spiritual orphans apart from God, we'll enter eternity the exact same way, apart from God. And there's nobody that bothers more than God himself. That's why he showed up in human history to do right what we had done wrong to earn immunity from sin and then offer that immunity to us. But the consequence is that he would have to take our punishment, which he did, so that we wouldn't have to. Well, John talks about this. John was one of the, the three closest disciples to Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 12, here's what it says. But to all who believed him and to all who accepted him, he gives the right to become the children of God. Those are the only ones who get the right to become the children of God. So not everybody is a child of God. Everybody is created in the image of God. That's true. But not everybody has been adopted into God's family. What does it take to be adopted into God's family? It's believing and receiving, believing and accepting. That's faith. It's believing God, but believing God enough to trust God. Most of us in Christian religions, Catholic and Protestant and everything, most of us are taught that if we're good enough, that a good God lets good people into a good heaven. That's what we're taught. So as long as we believe that we can be good enough to make it to heaven, then who is our faith and trust in? Don't say Jesus. Hold on. If you can be good enough to make it to heaven, if you have the power to be good enough to make it into heaven, then who is the one who is responsible for getting you there? You. Who is your faith, hope, and trust in? You. So as long as our faith and our trust and our confidence is in us and our ability to be good, who is our faith, trust, and confidence not in? Do you see what I'm saying? Our faith is misplaced. Now, you're in a 
Christian church on the weekend, so I'm assuming that to some degree you believe in some type of a higher power. Maybe you know his name is God. Maybe you know that he showed up in human history as Jesus. But, but Satan knows those things too. If there is a God and if there is a devil, don't you think they know each other? They at least know of each other. If there is a God and if there is a Satan, I don't think it's a stretch to say that they've probably met. Right? Does Satan know that Jesus died on the cross, yes or no? Does Satan believe Jesus was buried and rose from the dead, yes or no? But is that dude right with God? No. That's why it says believe and accept. There's two parts to it. So you can say something is true, but not allow it to impact anything about your life or your heart. But the moment you transfer your confidence off your ability to be the hero of your own story and place that faith and confidence in Jesus and what he did on the, de- uh, on the cross and his resurrection as the only thing that God will accept as payment for your sin on judgment day, in that moment, you receive the power to become a child of God. That's what John's taught. So not everybody is, but those who will turn from their disobedience towards God, their selfishness towards others to begin following Jesus, they're adopted into the family. Speaking of adoption, the idea of adoption doesn't come from the adopted. We have several families in our church who've adopted children. In fact, back when Grace Church only had five families and we were meeting at the Holiday Inn in Brockton, there were two of the five families had adopted kids, the Milnes and the Nobellinis. Uh, Lily Milne, uh, this is her, some of you guys know her, I think she's 20 years old and she signed up for the Air Force and she leaves this week. So if you know Lily, uh, make sure to go, I don't know if she's in this service or not. She was here last night, so if she came today, it's just so that you would hug her neck and say goodbye before she leaves. All right, but but she's leaving, but she was adopted out of, uh, from, from China. She wasn't born in the States. And then she was dropped off at the orphanage by her mom. Uh, it's, it's a rough story. She's talked to her mom about it since. Uh, but when her mom married a new guy, he didn't want her. So he made her drop her daughter off, and she did. So she's all alone, got nobody to take care of her, and she's in an orphanage in China. And it's, who wants to be in that situation? She didn't find the Milnes in a phone book and call them and, and initiate the process of being adopted. She was passive in the arrangement. She's sitting there, and she's helpless, and she's all alone. If it wasn't for the goodness and the generosity of Paul and Dana to proactively on their own go through everything it took over a year's worth of stuff to find her to pay for everything and show up, she'd still be without hope. Because at some point she would have been turned out of that orphanage without an education and then what hope would Lily have had then? We know what kind of a life she would have had and she's been rescued from all of that by the Milnes. Now, she did have one part to play, and that was to choose whether or not to receive that invitation. But Paul and Dana did everything. Paul and Dana did. They paid for it. They hired lawyers for it. They flew for it. They did everything. They gave up tens of thousands of dollars to make it happen. And then they show up, they get there, and then they ask her, do you want to be in our family? And in the same way, you don't initiate your relationship with God. He does everything. He bought it. He paid for it. He went through everything, and he's willing to forgive all of your crap. But he comes to you, and he just says, do you want to be in my family? It's not our idea. We're passive in this arrangement. God initiates. You just get the option on whether or not you want to receive what he's done for you. Jesus talked about this in John chapter 6, verse 44, if you've got your Bible, go there. But in John chapter 6, verse 44, here's how Jesus put it. 
For no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. I personally think this is one of the scariest verses in the Bible, and I'll tell you why. Jesus said, you don't come to me unless my Father is drawing you. You don't get to get right with God whenever you feel like it. Now, I believe that God, so God, Jesus said, nobody comes to me unless my Father draws you first. So Romans chapter 3, verse 10, no one seeks after God on their own, not even one. So all of us, spiritually dead, in relationship with God, an orphan. Jesus initiates. And we don't get to decide when that happens. Proof, anecdotally, we'll have multiple people listening to this service right here, this sermon right now, either in person or online. And for some of you, you recognize that you're spiritually disconnected from God. And you know that if you live the rest of this life disconnected from God, you'll enter eternity the exact same way. And you know it. Others of you are hearing the exact same words come out of my mouth, and all you're thinking about is, when am I going to shut up so you can go to do the next thing you're doing? What's the difference? It has nothing to do with me as the preacher. It has nothing to do with the sermon I'm preaching. It has everything to do with whether or not God's Holy Spirit is drawing you to faith or not. That's the difference. See, there'll be another day where you'll hear another sermon almost exactly like this, and you won't feel nothing at all. Why? Because God was drawing you today. Today was the chance that you had to be right with God. Not next time. Not last time. This time. See, we're not guaranteed anything beyond one chance. Romans chapter 1, I believe, teaches that even in nature itself, without any Bible or anything, somebody who lives in a tribe on some continent that's never heard of God would still come to the place where they would believe that there was a God, that right and wrong exists, that there's punishment for wrong, and that man lives beyond his physical death. And people who've studied human cultures throughout history have all found that that's what all human cultures and all places have in common. A belief in a God, a right and wrong, consequences for wrong, and that man exists beyond his last breath. That's, that's what the Bible said would happen. That's in Romans chapter 1. And it is my honest opinion that when God says in Romans chapter 1, I will, I will give everybody who's ever lived the breadcrumbs to find me. That anybody on any continent in any century who's ever gotten to the place where they said, I know that God is not that rock in the middle of my village. If you're there, show me. I believe that God would, if he had to, supernaturally make sure that somebody showed up to tell them about Jesus. Romans chapter 1. But I don't think that God is obligated to give anybody more than one chance. Truthfully, he's not obligated to give anybody any chance. He doesn't have to adopt. Do you have to adopt somebody? No, you're not forced to. God is under no obligation to adopt anybody or to rescue any of us. The truth is, we've all chosen to disobey God's commandments. We've all chosen to be selfish towards our fellow man. The truth is, we deserve everything that we could possibly get. But God is rich in love and mercy, and we're going to read that verse in just a second. Abraham didn't choose to be in God's family. God showed up to Abraham when he was in Ur of the Chaldees, which is an ancient Mesopotamia, and he said, if you leave this, then I'll make of you a great, great people. God initiated it. Jesus did with every one of his disciples. He initiated. He said, hey, you want to follow me? The one guy who said, hey, I want to follow you, who wasn't invited, was the guy that Jesus said, all right, this is what it'll cost. And that guy said, no thanks, peace, I'm out. So you have one guy in the whole Bible that initiated it, and that dude didn't really want it. Every other time, God initiates. 
The third misconception is that people don't start off in the family of God and fall out because of their sin. When I graduated college, Billie Jane was still a junior, and the only way that her dad would let me marry her while she was still in college is if I promised to make sure that she graduated from college. So after I graduated, I got a full-time job working for Keebler Cookies and Crackers. And yes, there are elves there. Um, and then, but I was bored at night because she's doing her homework and, you know, she had that 4.0 and I had that 1.8 that I had to maintain. And um, it was a lot of hard work partying, but um, to keep those grades down. Um, <laughs> so at night I started on my grad degree and, you know, what, oh, counseling, that seems easy. And then so I started the counseling courses for grad school and I realized I really don't want to listen to people's problems all the time. This will suck the living life out of And I realized it's a whole lot more work than I thought. But in the first class they teach you in grad school for, for counseling is the clean slate theory that everybody's born basically neutral in their environment, uh, conditions them to either be good or bad. So I guess then the idea is to put them in healthier environments and help them unpack, and then you make them, you make them good people. But the only problem with that is that it's not biblical either. Romans chapter 5 says that because Adam sinned, Death comes into the world, and so everybody dies because everybody sins. Everybody who has a human father is born with a predisposition towards sin. It's called a sin nature. The Bible talks about it often. It's something that we're born with. Anecdotally, I can prove this to you. Raise your hand if you've ever babysat anybody. Did you have to teach them to steal, to take, to hit? Did you have to teach your kids to lie? Did you have to teach... You had to teach them to be good. You had to teach them to share. You had to teach them not to. Because we're naturally born with a predisposition towards selfishness. We're naturally born with our hearts and our backs turned toward God. Our hearts turned away, our backs turned toward. This is how we're naturally, Romans chapter 5 talks about this. Ephesians chapter 2 also talks about it. Verse 1 says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins and you used to live in sin. Just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world, he, the devil, is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Before you get cocky, yeah, the devil's at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Don't get cocky. Look at verse 3. All of us were that way. Only difference between you and them is time and opportunity. That's it. That's it. You're, you're no more of a better person than anybody else in the adoption agency. All of us are equally orphaned. All of us desperately in need of being adopted to being rescued. Only difference is opportunity following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everybody else. By the way, this is why it's so important that Jesus was born to Mary as a virgin because he didn't have a human father. He wasn't born with a sinful nature. Adam and Jesus are the only two men who've ever lived in human history who had the choice not to sin. Does that make sense? That's why it's so, the virgin birth is so important. Jesus was born without a sin nature, and he sins that he was going to be judged for would be sins that he committed on his own. But God is so rich in mercy, verse 4, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead and caked in our sins and spiritually apart and deserving, he gave us what we didn't deserve, life, when he raised Jesus from the dead. He raised Jesus from the dead with new life to give you a new shot, 
life. And it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us up from the dead along with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown by all we do for him. What's the proof of his incredible grace and kindness? As shown in all he did for us who are united with Jesus. God saves you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for it. It's a gift of God. And this is going to wreck some of our religions right here. Salvation is not a reward for doing good. So that none of us can brag about it. We're God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned for us all along. When the idea of this dawned on John, he's writing, he, he wrote the book of John, right, as a, as a, as a narrative of the life of Jesus. And, and having watched it and, and known the people who grew up with Jesus, he writes the, the narrative, uh, the, John, it's the fourth book in the New Testament. Towards the end of his life, he sits down and he writes three miniature letters, uh, epistles are what we call them, to the different churches that had been started throughout the Roman Empire. And so this was the story of the life of Jesus. The three epistles are like instructions on what it looks like to live in relationship with other followers of Jesus uh, in a world that's screwed up. And in 1 John, he starts laying down the evidence that God loves us. And in chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, here's how he puts it. In 1 John chapter 3, he says this in verse 1. See like right in, the middle of the, right in the middle of the epistle. Like, see, like it starts to blow him away. See how much the Father loves us? Like, can you believe how much God loves us? How much does he love us, dude? He loves us so much for he calls us his children. He could have called us his servants. He could have called us his minions. I mean, he's creator God. He could have made us anything. But what he chose to make us was something none of us could have ever earned or bought our way into. Family. He calls us his kids. See, some of us have the idea that God doesn't care when we struggle with cancer. God doesn't care when we lose a loved one. He doesn't care when we've lost our job. He doesn't care when we've been dumped by our first boyfriend or girlfriend. But nothing's farther from the truth. Because I, being a sinful father, know how to be a good dad to my kids. God, who is without sin, knows way more better. And I know that's not good grammar. How to be a good father to me. I'm not his subject. I'm his son. I'm not the son of God. I'm not saying that. But I am a child of his, of, of his. See, I want to know about my kids. I want to know when Ryan scores three goals in one game. And he did this year. Man, I wasn't at the game. and we're in the, like, But I wanted to know why. Because when I saw him, I wanted, yeah, buddy! My kid's better than your kid. That's right. I mean, that, <laughs> that's true little bit. But like if he did really bad, if he accidentally deflected a goal into our, a ball into our own goal, or if he didn't make any shots, like yesterday, I think I should mention, we did win the Stoyak Championship. No, you don't need to clap. I, I didn't score a single goal. Um, they never gave me the ball, bunch of jerks. Um, I'm just saying, I, I want to celebrate when he celebrates, and I want to be sad when he, like why do I want to know when he did bad? Because I want, to, I want to walk appropriately with him in his life. I don't want him to go through anything by himself. 
And I'm going to give and keep giving and keep giving for the rest of his entire life because I have more to give. I'm his dad. And when the idea of that dawned, you mean that's how God looks at me, John? Yeah, John, that's it. And he says, I'm making sure everybody knows this. Why? Because it's going to change the way you feel about God. It's going to change the way you live your life. And he goes on to talk about that in the next two verses. If I can see. Verse 2, dear friends, we are already God's kids. But he's not yet shown us what we'll be like when Jesus appears. But we do know that we're going to be like him, for we'll see him as he really is. And all of us who have this eager expectation will keep ourselves pure, just as he is pure. John said this became the motivation for staying away from sin. The expectation that God is writing the story of my life with me. That I'm not on my own with stupid fat crayons where you can't write very good. You know what I'm saying? Like he's helping the story along. It doesn't mean that God brings every horrible thing into my life. Satan is also involved. He's at work in the hearts of those who don't believe. And he's also at work in the hearts of those who do to sabotage their faith. And so when Satan brings horrible things into my life to ruin me, God goes, kid, I got you. I won't let you fall. Now, a good dad doesn't keep his kids from every bad thing or else he'll raise his kid to be a spoiled, rotten brat. A good dad walks with his kid through every rotten, stinking thing so he learns how to respond appropriately. Are you with me? So what I know that God is writing the story of my life with me in Listen, every good story has horrible chapters right in the middle. Yes or no? Tell me any good stories where something bad isn't happening to the hero at some point in the movie. And there's no good, there's no thrill of the ending if there was no doubt how it would end in the middle. So when I know that God already knows how the last chapter goes and it works out for his glory and my good, when I get to the scary, crappy chapters, I just keep turning pages. Because I want to get through this one fast. <laughs> but I'll throw away the book. And I don't blame my father. He didn't bring all this death and crap into the world. This is us. But he is the one who can rescue me from it, through it. So James 1 says, James 1, we lay out the case, this adoption, what it looks like. John says, the realization of what God wants to do in my life changes everything about my life. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said this. In James chapter 1, verse 27. So, pure and genuine religion. I looked at this word religion. What does he mean by that? Because that's a complicated word, right? Like when you say religion, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about church services? Are we talking about like... Catholics and Protestants? Are we talking about Islam? Like, 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 like big meta? Is that the meta word, religion? Or is like what's, the word is in, in Greek is threskia. And threskia means act of worship, religious devotion, something that you do as a part of your expression of worship to God. That's what James is saying. He's saying that if you're looking for something tangible to do, to demonstrate your love for God, the most pure act of that kind of devotion, the most undefiled expression of that kind of worship is this. Caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing 
to let the world corrupt you. We just finished a series about that, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't copy the patterns and behaviors of this world. So pure devotion to God looks like this. You not copying the patterns and behaviors of this world. We just talked about that in the last series. But this, taking care of widows and orphans. Now, the widows that he's talking about, often talked about in the New Testament, are those that existed in the time of the Roman Empire where women, their testimony wasn't admissible in court and they could not own property. So if you were a lady, an older lady, and you didn't have any kids, if you were barren and then your husband died, you were put out. Distant family members took ownership of your property because you weren't allowed to own it. And if they didn't, out of the kindness of their heart, let you stay there, you'd be subject to the elements. You would die of privation. You're on your own. Like, you're an old, look, what have you got to offer? Absolutely nothing. You're completely defenseless. Anybody who would let you stay there, it's not because of the good you could do for them. You're an old person. You're not, like, like your ability to earn income for the family is behind you, just like an orphan. They've got nothing to bring to the table. Why is this the most beautiful act of worship to God? Because it most pictures what God has already done for us. Fostering and orphan care is not a matter of social justice. It's the most tangible expression of the gospel. The story of God. When you and I go through the inconvenience of going through all of the paperwork and paying for whatever money we have to pay, to just open up our home to a total stranger and let them in, understanding that that's going to to create total chaos in our home, James, the brother of Jesus, said, now that is the most perfect picture of what God did for you. There's nothing you will ever do that better pictures what God did for you than to open up your home and take in orphans and foster kids. There's not to love the un, what? Not that they're unlovable, but, but we were. To give to the selfish, to forgive the unforgivable, to love the unlovely. Isn't this what God has done for us? Nothing we have to offer in return, and he still keeps giving. And when does he get to the end of giving to his kids? Never. So there's nothing we'll ever, so I, I told Billy Jane yesterday, I said, you're not going to like what I'm preaching on this weekend. And she said, are you preaching about, and she named something else we're going through, and I said, no, I ain't ready for that one yet, and that ain't none of your business either. (laughs) But it's this, the idea of adoption and fostering comes up in our home every couple of years. And so I don't like this verse, but if I'm only allowed to preach on things I'm good at, there ain't going to be a whole lot of preaching going on here at Graves, (laughs) because I am a dude in process. And this is one of those verses where I'm most vulnerable, like not vulnerable, but just out of sorts. I don't know what this should look like. I know that there's 127 million orphans. I know that there are 9,000 kids in the foster system right here in Massachusetts and only 4,300 homes available to help them. And while the overwhelming majority of every foster parent you will ever make is a phenomenally good person, Not all of them are, but there's 1,500 awesome ones here, and how many of us are engaged? You know, there's 800 kids standing in line to be adopted just in Massachusetts, 800 kids needing to be adopted. In my opinion, they are the most vulnerable in our society. 
there should be Christians lined up so that the moment a kid comes open for adoption, there's people arguing over to get a kid. Not that kid wondering when somebody will love him enough to take him into his home. I'm not saying that if you love Jesus, you have to be a foster parent or to adopt. But if you don't adopt in a foster, you don't love God. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I already told you I'm not a foster parent and we're not adoptive parents either. I'm just saying, if I'm not going to do this, I think the default is that I should be open to it. Does that make sense? So that's what Billy Jane and I need to pray. I don't think everybody should adopt because I think some of us are really unhealthy. Y'all got really quiet on that. Is that a whole other sermon right there? And we're not ready. I know that. But some of us are, and we haven't, just because we haven't thought about it. So this isn't a guilt trip on anybody, especially me and Billy Jane, by the way. But I do think it would be appropriate if all of us just made ourselves available to God. God, it would be horribly inconvenient. It'd be messy. It would make my life more complicated. All of the reasons why I don't want to do this is all of the reasons why you shouldn't have done it for me, and you did. So I'm willing. I'm willing to pay it forward. I think I should at least pray that. I'm willing to pay it forward. Not that it'll happen this year, but what about three years from now? What about, maybe we could be helping somebody else. Maybe there's somebody in our church who's looking to adopt, but right now the finances are a problem, so maybe somebody else in, the, in this church says, you know, this is breaking my heart. I'm not the person, but I'll help somebody else be the person. I just think we need to be open to it, so if you would bow your head. The Bible says there's no better picture of the relationship between God and us than for those of us who've chosen to adopt others. So maybe your prayer is, God, I'm open to this, but you're going to have to make sure I know that you want me to do this. Can you make that your prayer? If I knew for a fact this is what you wanted me to do, I would do it. That's all. He may not ask you, and that's all right. If he doesn't, he doesn't. But if we never volunteer, it'll never happen at all, even if he did. So God, I'm, I'm available. Maybe it's not that way. Maybe, honestly, you're struggling with whether or not you should be a big buddy. Whether or not you should volunteer at the Boys and Girls Club. Whether or not you should coach. Whether or not you should go in on Fridays when you get off work early and volunteer at a local underprivileged, under-resourced school as a tutor or a mentor. I just know that anytime we love the unlovely, serve the ungrateful, forgive the unforgivable, do for others who can't do anything for us in return, we are never more like Jesus than that. So somehow that has to be reflected in our lives somewhere. So maybe your prayer is, God, show me a way to serve the defenseless, the hurting, the broken. Maybe it would be volunteering with the crisis counseling um, parent group that we sponsor for girls who want to keep their babies but don't have anywhere to live. Maybe you would open up your home to a young mother. I, I don't know what this is going to look like. But maybe your prayer is, God, put something on my heart that fits the way you've wired me. Something that I can do 
to make a difference in the lives of somebody else who could never repay it, and that's okay. Maybe spiritually you would recognize you're an orphan. You're separated from God, not because he doesn't love you, but because of your disobedience towards him and your selfishness towards others. And maybe all this time you've been hoping that you could be good enough and you now realize from the Bible that if it's up to you to be good enough, we're without hope. Only Jesus was. So maybe your prayer is, God, thank you for sending your, your son to pay for my stupidness, my mistakes, my sin. Forgive me, God, please. Clean my slate. If you're willing to adopt me, I want to be in your family. Forgive me and save me. Give me new life. Give me a second shot. I'm all in. God, I pray that you're pleased by the attitude of our hearts and the expression of our prayers that we're making right now to you. Help each one of us to take our next step, whatever that is, and help us to become the people you always intended us to be. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, and we all pray and say together, amen.